Well, good morning, everyone. Um, today, we're going to start off, we're going to talk a little bit about holiday traditions. Okay, I'm going to say it right off the bat. Christmas is really close, all right? I know that maybe made some of you mad. Some of you are already playing Christmas music. I can neither confirm or deny if that's happening in our house. <laughs> but, you know, we have some odd ho- holiday traditions, don't we? Like, if we think about them, some of them we just do every year, and we go, why do we do that? Like, why is it that we take stockings and hang them at a fireplace? Why do we do that? Now, you can go on the internet. I'm sure you can find an answer to that. I'm not going to give it to you today, so maybe that's something you can do on your own. But think about it. Why, why exactly is there an elf on the shelf? Right? That makes no sense to me. Even more so, why do we take a, a, um, a, a, just an invasive weed and hang it from the ceiling and then kiss under it? What's the purpose? Some cultures, they take oranges and they hang them all over their house, all over the place. One crazy tradition is they take a pickle. I mean, if it starts with a pickle, you know it's crazy, right? They take a pickle and they hide it somewhere inside or on the Christmas tree. Did you know there's one culture where every single Christmas day for lunch, they have only Kentucky Fried Chicken? And you're probably thinking it's Kentucky. Nope, you're wrong. So let's talk about a couple of these, because I think they're kind of odd, and then it'll tie into what we're talking about today. So what's the deal with the pickle, right? Why, why do they do this? Well, this is a tradition that has been in Germany for a very long time, and to this day, no one really knows why they do it. They just know that there are some people, a very small percentage of Germans, who hang a pickle somewhere on their tree, and the first kid to discover it, because that couldn't go wrong, Right? The first kid to discover it gets a special present. Why do they do that? Nobody knows. But they still do it. And they defend it. We're going to do it. How about the Kentucky Fried Chicken? Well, we know exactly where this came from. 1974, there was an ad campaign in Japan. And the ad campaign flat out lied. It said, Americans love to eat their Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas Day. And it convinced enough Japanese that to this day, about 4 million Japanese every single Christmas day will be eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. So much so that they actually put ads on the television saying, order a week in advance so you have your Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas Day. Now, let's be honest for a sec. There's, there's a lot of things that we do out of tradition, or we, we do, and we've either forgotten why we do it, or... We never knew in the first place, and it's just what we've always done. And if we think about church, church is that way. Why do we do the things we do? Someone who's a a first-timer to church today is going, there's a lot of things that I don't understand why we do them that way. And, And honestly, if we sit back and we just go, well, it's just the way we've always done it, we miss a big point. So today, my goal in this sermon is to take us through what we do so you can understand the bigger picture behind it, because everything we do from the time you walk in the door here till the time that you leave is purposeful. It's on purpose. There's a reason for it, and it comes out of God's Word, and it's meant to point us right back to it. So we're going to look today at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and as we do that, 
All sorts of stuff's falling out of my podium. I'm not sure what's going on here. As we do that, we're going to see that in 1 Timothy 3, there are three things that he brings out. Paul is explaining to Timothy what the church is for. The first thing he says is that it's God's household, his family. The second thing he says is it's the place where God dwells. And the third is that this pillar and buttress thing, which I'm going to explain here in a minute. So how did we get here? Well, last week we finished up chapter 12 of Matthew. And if you remember, right at the end, he's talking about what it means to become a member of God's family, an adopted member of God's family. So today what we're going to do is we're going to flesh that out a little bit before next week jumping in to Jesus' parables. And we're going to be in the parables for the rest of December. So it's kind of a new series, or November and December. We're going to get into that next week. So this is kind of an in-between. But really it's a fleshing out of what we talked about last week. Because last week was all about here's what it means to be a member of the family. Now we're going to talk about what it looks like. Because honestly, what we think of when we think of God's church, we think of Christ's church, is the most important thing we can think about. Because it is the visible aspect of what it means to be a Christian is when we get together and we're doing what we're doing here today. So let's walk through this short passage. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... All right, so we'll stop right there. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy is uh, his, his, basically it's his, his disciple, it's somebody he's trained up in what it means to follow Jesus, and he's left him in the city of Ephesus. And so Timothy's hanging out in Ephesus, and Paul's saying, listen, if I'm going to be late, I want you to be doing these things. I want you to prepare. I want you to focus in on what needs to be done. Really what Paul's going to give us here is he's going to give us the summary of the entire book of 1 Timothy. The first of two books that Timothy gets. So here's the main point of 1 Timothy, verse 15. That if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So again, household of God, the church of the living God, not some dead God, and then a pillar and buttress of truth. So the first thing we see is that the church is the expression of God's family. When we gather together, this is a family gathering. That's why we use that language instead of we say we don't have a worship service. Okay, This isn't like you come in and you pay your money and you get your service. No, this is a gathering. This is a family gathering. None of us are related by blood to Jesus, but we are related by his blood to Jesus. We are his adopted family. This is not our church. It's not my church. It's Christ's church. The church is not created by humans. It was created by Jesus. It's a divine institution. So let's remind ourselves of what Jesus thinks of his church. First, he founded it. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, he says, this is my church. I found this church. Ephesians 5.25 tells us he died for this church. Acts 9, verses 4 and 5 says that he identifies with us. And that was when, he was, when Paul, soon to be Paul, was persecuting the church. He says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with us in our suffering and in our joy. He calls the church his bride in John 3. And he calls the church his body in Ephesians 5. So this is what his household, this is how he views it. When I view my household, I have my wife, my two sons, and my daughter. And in theory, in theory, the household operates under the rules we put in place. Rules around bedtime, 
rules around dinner etiquette, rules around how they treat each other, and so on. We have a flow, we have a rhythm to our household. Every once in a while it gets kind of topsy-turvy when we're in the middle of sports season or different things like that. But there is a flow to it. There is an understanding of what it means. And we as God's family, there's a flow to what we do here. There's a, there's, a, there's a rhythm to it. But ultimately, because it is his family, like we saw last week, Jesus says, you're a part of my family if you do the Father's will. If you do what he says, so our tuning fork is God. When we're in tune with him, we're at harmony with each other. So Paul is telling us, this is how you are to operate. This is how you're to act with each other. And he lays it out very clearly. See, Paul defines the church not by what it does, but by its relationship to the truth. So he doesn't say, a church is a group of people that gather together on Sundays and do this. Instead, he says, the church is all about the truth. It holds up the truth. It anchors itself to the truth. And that's what we are to be as we gather together. So first, expression of God's family. Now we see that the church is the dwelling place of God's presence. The dwelling place of God's presence. Now this shouldn't be unfamiliar to you. If you know your Bible at all, you know in the Old Testament, God's presence was a very important thing. Early on, it was what brought people out of their culture. Abraham, Moses. We also see that it was a thing that was brought together under the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where God made his presence most clearly felt. And that was the movable tent that they would take with them throughout their wanderings. And then finally, the temple, which is where God's presence most clearly resided. But if you remember your your Old Testament, you remember that it's always separate from us. After Christ came and died on the cross, the temple is now inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. In the New Testament, it says God makes his dwelling place in us. So when we gather together every week, when we do this gathering, God's presence is more clearly felt in this room than when we're off on our own doing it by ourselves. It's because each of us is a temple to God. And so what an incredible undertaking to come together and feel him more clearly, to feel him more in his presence, to feel him dwelling with us more. So we see it's God's family, It's the place where God dwells, and last, it's the guardian of God's word. The church is the guardian of God's word. These two words, pillar and buttress, right? These are interesting words. The word buttress is translated in lots of different places as foundation or support. And this comes from the fact that Ephesus was famous for a temple. They had a temple where they worshipped Diana or Aphrodite, whatever name they want to give the demon that they were worshiping. This was a temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 pillars on it that held up this massive marble ceiling. Each pillar was donated by a king, and each one was made of marble with jewels and then crusted over with gold. It was very, very impressive. It was, the, the pillars were so tall that you could see it for miles around. See here, Paul is not using pillar as in what holds up the ceiling. Instead, he's saying this is something totally different because buttress, which is not the word he used, but it's the English equivalent, that word means support. So Paul's not going the support and the support. He's got something else in mind here. And what he's saying is is the pillar is 
pushing something up. And so the church is meant to be something that pushes up the truth. And if you think about it, if you've been to any ancient city, you see pillars and then what's on top? A statue of an important person, a statue of an important idea. We have that in our Capitol building. Capitol building has freedom on the top. We have all sorts of statues that are like that. They're elevated. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, elevate the truth. Put it up there so you can see it. So this pillar is meant to be that we proclaim God's word. We put it out there. We say, this is what it looks like. You know, the first time I went to see the Statue of Liberty, I was a little disappointed. You know, not because she's green when she should be bronze, not because, you know, any, any aspect of her, but if you've ever been there and you go and you're standing in front of the Statue of Liberty, what you notice is the pillar she's standing on is just as big as she is. Like in all the pictures, it looks like she's just this gigantic thing, but the thing that's supporting her is just as big. And why is that? Why is there this pillar that the Statue of Liberty is standing on? Is it because the ground on the island that wouldn't hold her? No. It's because by elevating her up the same height that she is, now she can be seen by people when they just come over the horizon, and that's the first thing they see. If you're in New York City, anytime you can get a glimpse at the, 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 at the, at the water out there in the river, you can see there's the Statue of Liberty. No matter how many boats are in front of her, you can see her. And that's what we are to be as a church. We're to hold that truth up and we're to say, look at this. Isn't this amazing? Church is to hold the truth aloft. We're to hold the truth up so it can be displayed. The second word here, buttress. This means we hold it firmly. The pillar was to put it aloft. This is about foundation. This is about holding it down, not moving. There is no changing. We're to hold to it tightly. I'm reminded of the ending of the movie Twister. In the movie Twister, there's two main characters, Joe and Bill. And if you remember, they're, ter- they're tornado chasers. They're, ter- they're, they're chasing after tornadoes, trying to figure out how to predict where they're going. Well, at the very end, they are standing there in this gigantic tornado. I think it's like an F5 or some big number, is bearing down on them. And they, they go into this little shack, and there's nothing in there except for pipes that go deep into the ground. And so they hook themselves to these pipes, and as the tornado's bearing down on them, it sucks the building away, and it pulls them up so that they're dangling, their feet are up in the air, but they're anchored to those pipes that go hundreds of feet into the ground, and they, will, they, they are not taken off. They're not destroyed by the tornado. And this is what this is to be for us. This buttress is to have our roots going down deep into God's Word. The buttress is the foundation Now see, there are churches that get this wrong. The Catholic Church gets this wrong. The Catholic Church believes that the church tradition is the foundation, not God's Word. God's Word is not the place that you build off of. Instead, it's how the church has interpreted God's Word. And they get this wrong. They use this passage, actually, to say, look, it says, the church, the church. But they're forgetting what Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, he says, You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ himself. You're like, well, that doesn't say it's built on the Bible. But actually it does, because prophets and the apostles are the writings. And so Paul is saying, we are built on these writings. These writings are our foundation. They're the bedrock that we build off of. 
I'm reminded of when I was in art class. I took an art history class, which was awesome because like, it was ancient art history, like medieval times into the Renaissance. Every single picture is of Jesus or something in the Bible. And so like, that was the easiest tests ever because it was just pretty much, you just look at the picture and like, hey, that's Goliath. Some of my classmates who'd never been to church really struggled with it. But I remember learning about a thing called a flying buttress. There needs to be a rock band somewhere named Flying Buttress. <laughs> a flying buttress is a support. It's actually a pillar that goes up next to a building and then has an arch that hooks into the side of it. If you've ever seen Gothic architecture, this is how they were able to build tall building, buildings without steel, without rebar, without concrete like we have. What they would do is they'd put these pillars up and then they'd hook them in and they're called a flying buttress, a flying foundation that supports so the building can go up high. This is what we are meant to do. We're meant to have the foundation in God's word so that we can elevate highly for the whole world to see here's the truth. So now the question would be, well, what is this truth? What is this truth that Paul is talking about? A few years ago, there was a White House scandal and the, the news reporters were asking um, the defense attorney, what is the truth? And he said, well, the truth is what's in this dep deposition that we signed. And they said, really? That, that's the truth? And he goes, well, yeah, unless we make a deal with the prosecution, and then whatever we say then is the truth. You see, that, that's the way our world wants it. We want subjective truth. We want our truth. We want to express it however we see fit except for when all of a sudden we're the one whose truth's getting trampled on. This truth here is an objective truth. We didn't invent it. The church didn't invent it. The church is reflecting it. We dare not alter God's truth because what do we see throughout the Bible is judgment on those who do. So instead, we support it. We safeguard it. One author writes, the truth of God's word is the sacred treasure given to all sinners for salvation. The church has the stewardship of Scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with it, misrepresent it, depreciate it, relegate it to secondary, or abandon it altogether, which is their reason for existing, all will experience impotence and judgment. It's really interesting to me that the churches in our, in our country that are getting rid of anything biblical are the churches that are losing people left and right. What's the purpose of gathering together if the Bible does not matter? What's the purpose of gathering together if it's a choose-your-own-adventure religion? I'm choosing my stay-in-bed-at-home religion then. So this is the truth, is that what we see in God's Word is true, whether we like it or not. It's true. So why do we gather? What's the point? Well, I got three reasons why we gather. The first one is the gravity of it all. You're like, okay, that's not what I expected. Let me explain to you. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? Why do people go and look at mountains like Everest? Do they look at it to say how great they are? No, they go to it and they say, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe how impressive this is. Listen to how the author of Hebrews expresses this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Think about that. We are to go, whoa, that's what we should be feeling when we come together. Oh my goodness, do you see how important this is? 
Oh my goodness, do you see how amazing that we have a God in the universe who condescended in his son to come down and die in our place. We should feel the gravity of this. We should feel the immensity of this. This is why we gather together. The second reason we gather together is gladness. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, rejoice always. Jesus, in the summary of of one of his parables about the prodigal son, says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Jesus, with his parables, he's never just talking about the story. He's talking about salvation. So we come together in gladness that yes, we are flawed and yes, we've made mistakes and yes, we've sinned, but praise be to God that Jesus took our place and took our punishment. So there's gladness that brings us together. And then finally, gratitude brings us together. We come together to express our thanks to God. Ephesians 5.20, Paul writes, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we gather every single week. This, this regathering every single week is to reorient us to the truth. And we need it, don't we? I mean, it's only 52 times a year, and even then, we don't always hit all 52. We need this daily if we're honest. And so Sunday is a much more pointed reminder of we need to remember the gravity of the situation we're in, the gladness that Jesus took our spot, and the gratitude to God for that great sacrifice. So each and every Sunday, we get together, and we're here to reorient our lives, to get our lives focused on what's really real to remind ourselves. So, what do we do now that we're gathered together? What does this look like? Well, the first thing it looks like is we gotta be together. The Bible's really clear on this. Throughout the Psalms, we see the psalmist saying, have the congregation, have the gathering, have the group. It's all about coming together because we need to remind each other. It's not just enough to have me up here on some video screen doing it. We need to be together to remind each other. There's encouragement here. Romans 15, 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many one another's in the Bible. You can't do that if you're by yourself. You can't do that on your own. Yes, you can worship God, and yes, you can have spiritual experiences, and yes, you can have dynamite quiet times, but you also need this gathering or a gathering like this because you have to be able to come together in unity and harmony. And what does it say? To sing, glorify God with one voice. That's what we do here on Sundays, and that's what we need. First Timothy, Paul tells us a few other things we should do. Chapter 2 talks about prayer. Chapter 3 talks about godly leadership. Chapter 4 deals with worship. And then chapter 5 and 6 deal with caring for each other and giving to the church. So we're going to take a minute and really practically hit what do we do? What is this stuff that we've been doing here this morning? What does it look like? So there's five things that we do every single Sunday. And these are not five things that New Life Church made up. Okay? This is something that churches have been doing for decades, for centuries, not decades, centuries. Right? We've been doing it ever since the, the Reformation. And that is read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, see the Bible. These are the things that we do. And I'm going to break each of these down so that you can see all of them. 
All right, so we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we see the Bible. So let's talk about the first one. We read the Bible. Paul told Timothy in chapter 4, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Tells Timothy to do that. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see this throughout in the Old Testament. Joshua gets up and reads the Bible. That's his, that's his rah-rah speech to send them in to conquer somebody. Josiah reads the Bible out loud to the entirety of Israel to remind them. Ezra reads it out loud in the time of Nehemiah. In the New Testament, there are dozens upon dozens of encouragements to read God's Word. See, God's Word unites us. We are here because God's Word is true. We are here because it is what makes us gather together on Sundays. It's the, it's the, it's the glue. What does it say in Romans 10, 17? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. It's not just faith comes by hearing because the pastor's got something funny to say. It's not faith comes by hearing because there's some you know, goodness in that. It comes by hearing the Word of God. We must hear the Word of God. So our services are going to be saturated with God's Word. The second thing we see is we preach the Bible. Paul also told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the Word. Paul himself says in Acts 20, I'm going to preach the full counsel of God's Word. This is not teaching. Teaching is you come away with more knowledge. Preaching is you should encounter the living God. There's exhortation. There's, there's encouragement to do something. Teaching is you remember it so you can pass a test. This is you remember it so you can live it. So we should have Scripture be our main point. It is my goal as your pastor to take every passage and find the main point and then explain how that main point applies to you. And we do that straight through the Bible. And we'll keep doing it as long as God tarries to send his son back. 1 Timothy 6.17, he says, Charge them. 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them and charge them. Titus, remind them. This preaching is reminding. I'm reminding you of what you know. I'm reminding you of the things you may have forgotten. I'm reminding you that Jesus is Lord because we need that. We need that over and over and over again. The third thing we see is we see pray the Bible. Paul urges that we pray. We see this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3. 1 Corinthians 14, over and over again, pray, pray, pray. And you know what's interesting about it is that when Paul's praying on any of the prayers that are recorded, they're just reflections of Scripture, just like Ross did today. And we didn't even talk about it. That's awesome. I love the Holy Spirit working in you, Ross. That he prayed Scripture. And, and I mean, is that not, I mean, we're getting Scripture into us, and then we're also talking to God about it. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But remember, Matthew 21 he says God's house is to be a house of prayer. So we are to pray the Bible. Fourth, we are to sing the Bible. The church in Colossae, Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, just so we're clear, the words sing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Paul's time are way different than what they mean in our time. I guarantee you that if we sat down with Paul and heard the style and the, the version of music that Paul was singing, we would have a hard time worshiping with him. Because it's, it's, it's very, very removed from what we would see as music today. 
Now, this doesn't mean we only sing psalms or that we only sing the exact words from the Bible, but what it does mean is as we sing, we are singing songs that are saturated with God's Word, that are so full of the language of the Bible, the theology of the Bible, that it is clear what and who we're singing about. There's no equivocation. You know, it's not one of those, those times where I remember I had students who would write on a true and false test, and they'd write a T, but then they'd put a little line in there that makes it look like an F, because then they'd go, well, I wrote an F, it was just a weird-looking F. Well, it was a T, but I accidentally, right? And that's kind of how some of the Christian songs are, aren't they? I mean, you could take Jesus out of there and put girlfriend in there, and it's the same song. Our songs that we are to sing are to be so clearly about Jesus that there's no misunderstanding. And we need this. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says that God's our primary audience, but verse 19 says we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. See, not only are we singing to God and we're saying, God, this is what you're like, but when we're singing together, we are encouraging and we're addressing them to each other. We can hear each other. And we go, they're singing about God, and they're singing about God. That encourages me to sing all the more. And that's what we are to do. We must remember that there is no form of music on earth that is inherently evil by itself. Now, you may want to plug your ears or rip them off. You may want to throw up. But there's no music that is evil. God made music. All music is beautiful. It's us humans and adding lyrics to them. That's the problem, right? And so along with that, there's no style in the Bible prescribed for how we're supposed to do worship. There's no style of this is what it should look like or this is what it should not look like. So how do we move forward? Well, I'm going to tell you how our church moves forward with this. First and foremost, over everything else, all the songs that we will sing are going to be biblical. They're going to be 100% biblical. That is our driving goal. And if we hit that goal and don't hit our other two goals, so be it. Because we're hitting the fact that it's God's word. Sadly, when I grew up, um, a lot of the songs I sang in college in the 90s and early 2000s, they weren't very biblical. They were catchy, very repetitive. They were not very biblical. And even today, some of the songs that we hear on Christian radio, while maybe not outright heretical, are right there on the line. And so we need to recognize that just because it has the label on it doesn't mean that it's going to meet the requirements for us to sing it together. So our songs will always be biblical. The second thing is they must be singable. They must be singable. And what that means is we're not requiring you to be able to read music to sing it. So in this room, we can have an opera singer and we can have an expert shower singer <laughs> in the same room and yes, we may make the dogs down the neighborhood bark, but we are going to lift a joyful noise. Not a pretty noise, not a harmonious noise. We're going to lift a joyful noise. That's the second thing we look at. The third thing we look at is we look at, as we choose songs, we choose songs based on their tone and style and speed. But in order to get this, you need to understand how we structure church. So this is going to be really practical for the next minute. So we have what's called a liturgy at this church. A liturgy is a fancy word that means order of service. Just sounds cool, liturgy, right? And we see these all over the place. Let me give you an example of a liturgy, okay? So I drive up in my car. 
I'm feeling a desire to go. I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. I pull up in my car, roll down my window. There's this nice, bright, shining board. And on the board, a magical voice goes, good morning, can I help you? And I go, good morning. I would like a crunch wrap. The lady goes, oh, yeah, would you like a value menu? Nope, just that. Would you like something to drink? No, ma'am, I don't need anything to drink. Would you like sauce with that? Yes, I'd like some breakfast salsa. And she goes, okay, please pull forward. I pull forward, another magical window opens up, here comes my food. I have to pay for it because nothing's free, it's costly, so I give them my money. They give me back my food. I put it, in my, put it on my chair, she says a nice benediction, have a great day, closes the door, and I drive off. Where did I go? I went to Taco Bell. And I, as you can tell, I've been to Taco Bell quite a bit. There's a liturgy to Taco Bell, isn't there? We show up hungry. We line up. We join others in the desire to have a need met. There's an entrance. There's a, there's a beginning. There's a price that's paid, whether it's your time or your energy or your tithe, whatever that is. And then you are given what you need. And you know, the structure of a, a drive through liturgy tells us a whole lot about our culture, doesn't it? It tells us that we want it now. And we want it our way. And if we don't get it our way, man, we're going to put a bad review on Yelp or we're going to take it back and we're going to talk to the manager. No, I wanted it, this kind of food. We have this desire for we could, should get it now. We should have just go, go, go. See, structures teach us things. And our church has a structure for how we do worship every single Sunday. We gather together. When we gather together, our goal is to, to show the good news of Jesus Christ, like a diamond. When you look at a diamond on a ring, it's got prongs. You don't see the prongs. The prongs are meant to display the diamond and make it look glorious. So our liturgy is to display the diamond. So what does our liturgy look like here at this church? We start off at the very beginning of the service with a call to worship. Our focus in the very, very beginning is creation. God has made us. And if you look at this, this, this four parts, this is the gospel. God made us, we fell, he sends Jesus, we are redeemed, and we are restored on the new heaven, new earth. It's the gospel. Four points, right straight through it. It's what our kids are being taught in children's ministry. It's what they're being taught in the nursery. Yes, even in the nursery. This is the point of why we gather together. So every Sunday, we start our service with creation. The first two songs are all about God. They're all about him making us. It's all about who he is. We kick off the service with a call to worship. Now, many of you miss this because you're out there fellowshipping, and I love that. But just so you know that it's there, we start off with reading God's word. And Aaron did it this morning. He read God's word, and it's the focus of what we're going to be singing about. So you come in a little bit late, and you hear the songs. You're like, what are we singing about? Well, it's kind of hard when you don't know where we're focused. That's fine. You can catch up. Because then we get to the pastoral prayer, which Ross did so adequately today. Ross is one of our elders. Everybody that comes up here and does a pastoral prayer is an elder, your elders. They stand up here and they remind us of the fall. They remind us of the fact that we have sinned and we are in desperate need of a savior. That leads into our third song. Our third song is always gonna be about longing for Jesus. It's about desiring to have a savior. That song's probably not going to be very chipper because we've messed it up. There's going to be some solemnity to that. 
And so you see how we're building the drama into the sermon. The sermon is meant to be all about redemption. It's my job up here not to point you to some cute things in the text. My job is to point you to the only thing that matters, and that is Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection in our place. And we're going to point to that. And now we're starting to get to the, hey, here's the good news. Once a month, we celebrate communion as a part of that redemption. And then as we leave, we start looking forward to the restoration. And yes, some of these songs will be joyful. Some will still be somber. Some days we finish our sermon and there is still some, there's still some somberness that needs to happen. But we should be finishing as we are done, joyfully going, praise be to God. Now, there's plenty of people in our world who find ways to have joy. I mean, Blazer fans are having a lot of joy right now. Just wait. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Blazer fans are having a lot of joy. There are people who are just kind throughout. They're just joyful. Our joy that should be coming out of our services should not be just joy for joy's sake. It should be joy for Jesus' sake, for what he has done for us, that gratitude, that gladness needs to be there. And so as we finish up, we cap it off with the benediction, which I will do again today, and I will do it as long as you'll have me, and I will speak a good word over you and say, go in grace, and I'll remind you of God's word. So seeing this liturgy helps us understand how the structure goes. There is a flow to it. See, we like to think that we have to have only good emotions when we come to church. The problem with that is that that doesn't match what the Bible teaches. Nearly 70% of the Psalms are laments. They are saying, this is a bad day. I'm not having a good time. And then they finish with pointing to Jesus. So we mirror that from time to time. So we are going to feel the wave, the whole gamut of emotions in our services with the ultimate goal of getting to the fact that Jesus died in our place. So the fifth thing we do and as you can see, we've done each of these things we see in our liturgy. The last thing we do is we see the Bible. We see the Bible. And the way we do this is through what are called ordinances. Our ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. We do these all the time because these are the visible pictures of what we've done inside. We don't believe either of these saves. There are going to be people in heaven who've never had the Lord's Supper and who've never been baptized. But if you're here and you're a member of God's family, those are two things that you do to say, this is who I am and this is the group I belong to. We get this baptism from Colossians 2. Paul is writing to a church of baptized believers, explaining it, saying, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised you from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He nailed it to the cross. Notice that Paul takes faith and baptism hand in hand. He says, if you have faith, you should be baptized. Why? Because it's a declaration of what you have done internally. We all get to see it. We all get to see how you are buried and you are done, and then you come out and you are new. You get soaked. Everyone sees you disappear and reappear. Notice it says in verse 13, you were raised through faith. It's your faith that's on display. We can't see each other's hearts, but we can see the baptism. We can hear the testimony of the one who is baptized. This is a public expression of faith. 
And I would encourage you, if this is something you haven't done, come see me. You need to be baptized. It needs to be a time to invite all your non-Christian friends and put it out there and say, come see. Come see what's happened to me on the inside. We're doing that next Sunday, actually. So if you're interested in doing that, come see me. The Lord's Supper is the second ordinance. We do this at the first Sunday of every month. Some churches do it every Sunday. Some churches do it once a quarter. We do it the first of every month. Sometimes we'll do it extra, but it's definitely going to be there. This is simply a means by reminding us of what Jesus did. Remember, when Jesus had, had the cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was sitting right there with them. What are they remembering? He's saying, when I'm gone, this is what you do. We remind ourselves of what this is. We start with examining our hearts. We look inside to say, do I have something with my brother or sister in this room? And then we go and we fix that before we partake of the bread or the juice. Another way to see the word, this isn't an ordinance, but another way to see the word is how we care for each other. At New Life, we have a benevolence fund, which is a place where people can give money, and some of our tithes and offerings go to that, um, so that there's money if people need rent help or car problems, things like that. And some of you have taken advantage of that, and we encourage you to continue to do that. Also, we care for each other when we see a need and we step in and we fix it. You guys are amazing at meal trains. We've had meal trains for people who've lost loved ones. We've had them for new babies. We've had them for moves. We've just had them for people who've been going through a rough time. Not only that, but we, I see many of you jumping up to go help somebody. They can't get their car to the, to the shop, so you take them. You help them. We do that. We need to be caring for each other, so look how we can care for each other. The last way that we see God's Word on display is what we do with our finances. You know, it's no surprise, it's no, it's no secret that we are in a tough go right now as a nation. You, no one's saying the recession word, but yeah, it seems like we're probably in that. Inflation's not good, there's all sorts of supply chain issues, and it's on the news nonstop. Here's the thing, God's word promises us that if we take our money and we give God 10%, he will make the other 90 go just as far as he made those 5,000, to those 5,000 people with the loaves and fishes. He promises us that when he says, give me some of your money, he's going to take care of you. He's not saying he's going to give you double that money back. This isn't a prosperity gospel, that, that nonsense. No, this is, this is him saying, it's my money, I'm going to care for you. So when we give, when it makes no sense, right, that's what God wants to see from us. It's glorifying God that way. So this seeing the Bible, we do it in so many different ways. We do it through two symbols, and then we do it with how we hold on to our lives and our time and our energy. So that when people come, they will say, surely God is in that place. Isn't that what we want? We want people to not go, wow, that's a really good looking crew, even though you guys are. Okay, they're really nice. What we want them to see is Jesus is there. There's a lot of people in there that look a lot like Jesus. That's what we want. So finally, what does this mean for us? Well, first one is pray, because Sunday is coming. Every single week, like clockwork, Sunday's here. Until Lord Jesus comes back and takes us, there's going to be another Sunday. So we need to prepare our hearts and our minds for Sunday. You think about the holidays coming up, right? Some of you are already thinking about Thanksgiving. It's weeks away. Some of you will think days before and you're planning this holiday. Every single week, you're not having a family gathering around turkey and football. You're meeting with the God of the universe. 
Why aren't we prepping more? Why aren't we preparing our hearts and our minds for this moment? Maybe that means Saturday nights you stop staying up late. Maybe it means Saturday nights you stop watching stuff. Maybe it means you get up early on Sunday and you pray over the passage we're going through. Whatever that looks like, we need to start taking some ownership of the fact that this is a family gathering and we are going to bring something to this family gathering. For some of you, it may mean it's time to get involved in ministry. We've got lots of good ministries that are working every single Sunday morning. We have worship team, we have our tech and sound teams, we have scripture readers, we have greeters, we have a hospitality team, not to mention our dynamite children's ministry. So we got places for you. Now, maybe some of you are like, I'm not ready for that yet. Well, listen to me on this. You still can get ready for Sunday. So the first thing I need you all to do is you need to pray for me. You need to pray for your preacher. Now, most Sundays it's me. A few Sundays a, month, a year, you're going to have someone else. Pray for the preachers. See, we need to pray that the preacher gets it from God. See, the sermon doesn't start when I get up here and I start out my little introduction. That's not when the sermon starts. The sermon starts two weeks ago when I sit down with the passage. And as I'm reading the passage, I don't need to hear what I need to say from me. I need to hear that from the Holy Spirit. So I need each and every one of you praying for me as I'm preparing. And here's the awesome part about it. You pray more for me and my sermon prep, you get more out of the sermon. One, your heart's soft. It's already ready to go. And two, the Lord's gonna answer that. He wants to answer that. He wants to have you hear from him right here and right now. Because congregations will get what they pray for. You'll get it. Next, you need to pray for your own soul. And this is key. Pray that your ears will be open. Pray that your heart will be softened. Pray that your conscience will be pricked about what's in the way between you and him. As Sunday nears, you need to be building anticipation. What's the Lord going to do? God is in this place. What's he going to do? Get excited for it. We get excited for all sorts of really silly things. It's time to get excited for something that really matters. This consuming fire is here with us now. This calls for us to put aside things. It calls for us to be ready for what the Lord's going to do. One of the best resources I've seen for being able to pray for my own soul is what you guys were given on the way in, this book, Praying the Bible. If you didn't grab one, there's some more out there on the table. We got enough for every family that's here to take one. Please take one. This is not a magic potion. As a matter of fact, if you read nothing in here except for the appendix, appendix one, I'll be totally happy. Okay, because Donald Whitney doesn't have any magic potion. All he does is he says, we need to be reading God's word and praying it back to God. Just like what Ross did today, we need to do that. And in the appendix, he has a nice little diagram of how to pray a psalm a day. You can pray five a day, and you get through the entire book of Psalms in one month. You can pray one a day, get through the entire book of Psalms in five months. But each day, you're praying. And some days, yeah, you're going to pray Psalms that are like, oh, wretched man am I, oh, this is terrible. Other times, it's going to be all happy. But either way, you're praying that back to God. You're opening up God's word to speak to the author about his word. I mean, that's the best news in the world, that the God of the universe who wrote these things down wants us to communicate with him and will hear what we're saying. So take those, utilize those, give them away if there's extra copies out there, because we need to be a praying church. Every Sunday morning, we have prayer in this chapel over here. I know that's early for people to get here. It's at a little after nine. Get here. 
at bare minimum, be praying during the week for what we got going on here. Revivals, renewals, new outpourings of the Holy Spirit only happen when people pray. Let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that is lifting this gathering up each and every week. So, let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God that we can approach. We know, like we sang just a minute ago, Lord, that you are holy, holy, holy. That you are the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, we should just cease to exist being in the presence of such holiness. But your Son has come down and he has bridged the gap between us and you. He's paid the price. So now, Lord, I pray that we would not take this for granted, that we would call out to you, that we would come to you, that we would pray to you. Lord, build up an anticipation in us for each and every Sunday where we get to meet with you. We get to meet with other people who know you and that we get to be more in your presence now than we've been all week. So Lord, I ask for that. I ask for the, the, the reminders to pray, the, the encouragement to be on our knees pleading with you to do a mighty work in this gathering. Lord, we love that you have come down and met with us. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to desire to meet with you. Lord, help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.